My name is Christian Wagner, and this is Disputed Questions. So for this week, we are going to go through the question of whether Mary was a perpetual virgin. So this is another issue that divides, in many instances, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and some Anglicans and evangelicalism as a whole even though historically, as we'll see, the Reformed and Protestants held, to the most part, to the perpetual virginity of Mary, with some distinctions that I'll, that I'll bring up. So, I'm sorry if I refer to this as last week and this week, because I'm recording this, I'm recording two at a time, so it'll actually be when this comes out two weeks ago, but... As you'll see if you watched last week, I'm switching up the ordering a little bit. I've always read Thomas like this. I read the said Contra first, which is his proof text, then his explanation, then the objections and the answer to the objections together. So I think that's a little more of a smoother uh, way of doing things, especially when you're listening to it. Uh, it makes it a lot easier to understand, and it'll have to backtrack from the objections to the um, answers second time around. So let's get to it. So first, the said contra. So it seems as if uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary is a perpetual virgin, virgin, because as the First Lateran Council 649 states, if anyone does not properly and truly confess in accord with the Holy Fathers that the Holy Mother of God, an ever-Virgin and Immaculate Mary, incorruptibly bore him, her virginity remaining indestructible even after his birth, let him be anathema. Further, on the eastern side of things, St. John of Damascus writes, For he who was of the father yet without mother was born of woman without a father's cooperation. And so far as he was born of woman, his birth was in accordance with the laws of partition. While so far as he had no father, his birth was above the nature of generation, and in that it was at the usual time, for he was born on the completion of the nine month. His birth was in accordance with the laws of parturition, while in what it was painful, it was above the laws of generation. For as pleasure did not precede it, pain did not follow it. According to the prophet, who says, before she travailed, she brought forth and again before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child, Isaiah 66, 7. Just as he who was conceived kept her who contained conceived still virgin, in like manner also he who was born preserved her virginity intact, only passing through her and keeping her closed. For it was not impossible for him to have come by this gate without injuring her seal in any way. So further, the Council of Ephesus in the early 5th century writes, After giving birth, nature knows not a virgin. But grace enhances her fruitfulness and affects her motherhood, while in no way does it injure her virginity. Whoever brings forth mere flesh ceases to be a virgin. But since she gave birth to the word made flesh, God safeguarded her virginity so as to manifest his word, by which word he thus manifested himself. For neither does our word, when brought forth, corrupt the mind, nor does God, the substantial word, deigning to be born, destroy virginity." And then now St. Jerome, writing in the 5th century, yes, early 5th century, writes, Might I not array against you the whole series of ancient writers, Ignatius, 
Polycarp, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, all second century fathers, and many other apostolic and eloquent men who against Ebion, Theodosius, and Valentinus held these same views and wrote volumes replete with wisdom. If you had ever read what they wrote, you would be a wiser man. But I think it better to reply briefly to each point than to linger any longer and extend my book to an undue length. So what's really important here, this quote actually really shocked me, is that Jerome is saying that there's apostolic fathers and there's the apologists of the second century who are writing against the Gnostics and who are supporting the idea that Mary is a perpetual virgin, that that was an actual topic of debate. And now many might, against this uh, quote that I've, that's being brought forth, say, well, we don't have their writings. We don't see this in any of their writings where they even cover this. We don't get this until a little bit after what they're, when they're writing. But we have to remember that a lot of their works are lost and that Jerome had many, many, many more of these early, early fathers than we could ever dream of. Okay, now into the respondeo where I'll explain the doctrine and defend the doctrine in a positive manner. So there's three senses in which we can speak of Mary being semper virgo or perpetual virgin. So there's ante partum, which is before birth, in partu, which is during birth, and postpartum, which is after birth. So the confession is before birth, she was a virgin, in birth, she was a virgin, and after birth, she was a virgin. So uh, when the heretics Bonosius, Helvidius, and Jovinian fought against the doctrine in the fourth century, he pointed back, they pointed back to Tertullian. Because Tertullian, writing in the early 3rd, late 2nd century, seemed to assume that Jesus' brothers were born by Mary. and But they were condemned by the Church Catholic in multiple councils, and were Jerome wrote against them heavily. And then in the early 5th century, at the Council of Ephesus in 431, it reached its ecumenical status, where everybody in council, the bishops of the Church Catholic, met together and condemned the idea that Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Now, this is talking about postpartum, so after birth. Now, the idea of impartu, which is in birth, was dealt with by a few local councils. It was first brought up by uh, St. Ambrose and the Synod of Milan, but it didn't really reach into its ecumenical stage until the 7th century when these uh, debates about the more particular parts of the perpetual virginity began to arise. And in the 5th and 6th councils, this was also confirmed postpartum, but in part 2 wasn't until the 7th century. And there's really little disagreement about this after these 5th century debates. It kind of, I mean, these 4th century debates, it, w what happens is Jerome answers them, and that's kind of it. Everybody in the Church Catholic agrees on this. And even a, into the Reformation era, you have Tyndale, Zwingli, Luther, Calvin, Beza, Perkins, Turretin, Bullinger, Cranmer, Vermigli, Whitaker, Guy de Brace, Andrews, Guge, and Usher, in Wesley, and you, basically everybody in the post-Reformation era agrees on virginity postpartum. This isn't really a debate. 
the debate comes around the vow of virginity, which we'll talk about later, and in part two, which is the physical markers of virginity being retained in birth. Now, but these two are very small things. These are, it's not really debated at all until you get to some of the later evangelicals. And now in the modern day, it's gotten to the point where if I said this fact to many Reformed people today, even those who pride themselves in reading uh, historically Reformed sources, and if I recounted this fact to any evangelical, they'll just have shock. They'll because it's instantly seen when you bring up the perpetual virginity of Mary as being some sort of weird Catholic doctrine or weird Eastern Orthodox doctrine. It isn't really taken seriously by most evangelicals. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to bring up the best of the best when it comes to the arguments against it. And then I'm also going to mix in some of the uh, basic arguments that you get by uh, Baptists, for example, or really any evangelical, even in the Reformed world, even in those higher church traditions and historically grounded traditions. Unfortunately, this doctrine has been lost. So when we go to the biblical evidence, you have Ezekiel, and he refers to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Typologically, this was recognized by the fathers who read the Bible like the apostles did in a typological manner. And it refers to, this gate shall be shut it shall not be opened, and no man shall pass through it, because the Lord God of Israel hath entered it. So the gate refers to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the Lord God of Israel going through it refers to Jesus. Now this prophecy is clearly referring to Christ, and the fathers over and over again, when they read this text, read it as a future prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ and his conception. And no man passing through it, it shall not be opened, things like that make the fathers conclude from this text that the Blessed Virgin Mary remained a perpetual virgin both in partu and postpartum, because if it wasn't opened, then the physical markers of virginity weren't removed. That's the idea behind it. And then now, this one is really, I think, the best argument, and it comes from St. Augustine of Hippo. And when you go back to the Annunciation and Gabriel says, hey Mary, you're going to give birth to a son. And what's her response? Her response is, how can this be? She's shocked by the Annunciation. Well, she's going to be married soon. She's currently uh, betrothed to Joseph. Why would she be shocked that she's going to bring forth a child? If you talk to an engaged friend, uh, two or three months before they're being married, and, they, and you said, hey, you're going to become pregnant, why would they be shocked? It doesn't make any sense unless Mary had planned on not having sexual activity, unless she planned on remaining a perpetual virgin, unless she had that vow of virginity, which the fathers refer to, that she had before she was married vowed to be a virgin, and St. Joseph did the same thing. And Joseph was more of a protector of Mary as she served God in her life, not after the manner of motherhood. And I think this is a pretty open and shut case. I, I can't think of any other explanation of this text. Why in the world would Mary be shocked? It doesn't make any sense unless she was planning on remaining a perpetual virgin. And Augustine comments, had she intended to know man, 
she would not have been amazed. Her amazement is a sign of the vow of virginity. And I would love to hear any arguments against this reading of the text because this is really open and shut to me. And now, thirdly, in the biblical evidence, it's implicit when you look at the cross. So if you remember and go back to uh, John and Mary at the foot of the cross, I believe it's in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to Mary, Mary, behold your son, in reference to John, and says to John, John, behold your mother. Now, if Jesus had a bunch of these brothers in Jerusalem at the time, why in the world would she be handing them over to John to take care of her? She would have all of these sons to take care of her. Now, the only explanation that makes sense is because St. Joseph had died, is she had no more children. She had no more men in her life to take care of her and to protect her. So the only explanation for this, or at least the best explanation of the evidence, it isn't as open and shut as the last one, but implicitly you can see it's there, is that she had remained a perpetual virgin. She didn't have any other kids. So, it, and further, it was the time of Passover during Jesus' crucifixion. And if you had a bunch of devout Jewish brothers who in the ancient world, you didn't move that far away from where you were born. They were all near Jerusalem, and they would have all went to the city of Jerusalem during the Passover. Why didn't, why didn't Jesus just call one of, say, Mary, this is the brother, hang out with James, hang out with whoever, and be taken care, be cared for by one of your brothers? So that's implicit in that text. It isn't as open and shut as the last one, but it makes sense. I don't think there's really any other way to explain why the heck that was that happened. So now you have the arguments from fittingness. So you have the, the historical arguments, which is a lot of the second century fathers who probably knew Mary, or at least knew people who knew Mary, were writing that she was a perpetual virgin. Now, they would be called out if they were just making this up, and why are so many people making it up who knew the apostles? It just doesn't make sense that this doctrine just arose like that. And then you'll get guys like uh, James White, who will bring up this random Gnostic text from the second century, the pro Proto-Evangelium of James, and say, well, this is where it came from because this happens to refer to the perpetual virginity of Mary. And that's really just a bad argument because you don't have all of these fathers uh, from the second century who were writing before the Proto-Evangelium saying, well, this is where I got it from. I got it from this random Proto-Evangelium of James who's clearly Gnostic. Well, these fathers despised the Gnostics and spent most of their lives defending the faith against the Gnostics. Irenaeus, for example, who wrote an entire massive, massive work against heresies. And it just, the historical evidence just doesn't make sense with any other explanation than that she was a perpetual virgin and that the fathers recognized this. So from fittingness. So first, it is fitting that as Christ is the only begotten Son of God, the Father, so too he is the only begotten Son of Mary. Second, it is unfitting that the shrine of the Holy Ghost, where he formed the humanity of Christ, should be desecrated by another. Now thirdly, it would be derogatory to the holiness of the Mother of God 
For God miraculously preserved her virginity while also miraculously giving her a son. It would be ungrateful for her to forfeit what was miraculously preserved in her. It would show discontent. So you would be imputing the fact that God gave this miraculous gift to Mary where she was not only a virgin but also a mother. And that she just decided to throw it away and decided to go on and have more children. And this is kind of an, of an argument which uh, Martin Luther makes, where Martin Luther's like, it would be ungrateful. She already has the perfect son. Why would she want another one? It just doesn't make any sense. Now, fourth, it would be derogatory to the holiness of St. Joseph. So you'd be imputing St. Joseph. For this assumes that St. Joseph would violate her when he knew by a revelation from heaven that her virginity had been miraculously preserved. So St. Joseph knew also that there is this miracle that happened where Mary stayed a virgin while giving birth to a son. So St. Joseph would be going against the gift that God had given to Mary. You'd be imputing sin and presumption to St. Joseph. Now fifth, as Turretin writes, Thus it is profitable that the womb in which our Savior received the auspices of life once he entered into this world as from a temple, was so consecrated and sanctified by so great a guest that she always remained untouched by man. So this, this argument from fittingness is kind of the idea that you have Jesus there, and Jesus' presence has sanctified so greatly the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Why would you have somebody else presume to enter into that temple which our Savior had dwelt and then now let's get into the objections because the objections are going to be the most important part of this because yes you have that positive argument yes you can see it implicitly in scripture you can see it explicitly in the tradition you can make a pretty strong argument there but a lot of people they just they have these objections they have these issues where in a straightforward and uncritical reading of the b biblical text without this idea even being a possibility they they read this and they read, for example, there's brothers or the until or the before, and they're, they read it and they're like, well, I just don't see it. And I, I don't care about tradition is what a lot of these people say. Therefore, I, I have no binding of myself to the ecumenical and historical teaching of the church that Mary was a perpetual virgin. So first, uh, scripture explicitly states the contrary. So at Luke 2, 22 and 23, when it applies to Christ, the scripture, every male that openeth the womb. So the idea that the womb is open, therefore the physical markers of virginity are destroyed. And this can be responded to on two points. First, it is not necessary to the doctrine of postpartum virginity that impartu virginity is kept. It is not necessary that... Mary be regarded as a perpetual virgin and keep the physical markers of virginity. And then second, clearly opening the womb is idiomatic. Uh, it doesn't have to, in all cases, refer to uh, a physical opening of the womb. It just refers to giving birth. This is being an extremely rigid and literalistic reading of the text. It doesn't have to be read in that light. Now, the second objection is going to be the idea that when Scripture talks about uh, the relationship of Mary and Joseph, it says before they came together. And now coming together is clearly idiomatic of sexual activity. So 
after the birth of Christ, they must have had sexual relations because before there must be an after. If I say before I record this YouTube episode, I set up my mic. Obviously, I set up, I recorded after I set up the mic because I did it before. See? And this is wrong because we can think of many cases in which before is not used in this way. For example, Thomas Aquinas, before he finished the Summa, he died. Clearly, Thomas Aquinas did not finish the Summa after he died. It was left unfinished. So, and not in all cases of, uh, of that usage of the preposition before does the after happen. We can think of plenty of cases like uh, before uh, he died, he didn't say goodbye. Obviously, after he died, he didn't say goodbye. The goodbye never happened. And that's just not how before is used. And now another explanation that can be, uh, that can be brought up is that come together is not in reference to sexual intercourse, but it's idiomatic of them living together. And this is a remote possibility, but and some of the fathers and some of the medievals explain the text in this way, but I don't necessarily agree with it. I think coming together is clearly in reference to sexual intercourse, but as we saw before, doesn't always and doesn't necessarily refer to uh, something infallibly happening after the fact. So before they came together, this happened. Clearly, the point of the text is that it didn't happen because they were intending for it to happen, but it was stopped by the conception of Christ. That doesn't mean anything about whether it happened or not. It just means that they intended it, and then it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that they'll intend it in the future, especially after the events of the Annunciation. And now the, the, I think this is the third objection. Yeah, it's the third one. So the third objection is going to be from the nature of marriage. So the argument runs thus, especially uh, from 1 Corinthians 7, is going to be where this is drawn from. So Joseph and Mary were married. Marriage is consummated by sexual relations. Therefore, in order for Joseph and Mary to be married, they would have to consummate it by sexual intercourse. So the idea of consummation. Therefore, they wouldn't truly be married unless they had consummated the marriage. It just wouldn't be a marriage. And clearly we know that they were married, therefore uh, there must have been a uh, consummation of the marriage by sexual intercourse. So this, can, this really is a bad ar another bad argument. So they're clearly referred to as espoused, Joseph is referred to as Mary's husband. Mary is referred to as Joseph's wife, all before the birth of Christ even happened. So uh, it's legally constituted as a marriage, and they're regarded as being married, although there were those practical uh, effects of the, uh, of the union of marriage. This is all regarded as true before Christ is even born, and we know that they didn't have intercourse before Christ was born because we confess the virgin birth. So this doesn't necessarily follow. And then also, uh, if you look at the traditional theology of marriage, marriage isn't constituted by sexual intercourse. 
if a couple has the consent of marriage, they have their vows at the altar, they are constituted as married, no matter what. They need to have a, a, a disposition traditionally in order to break apart the marriage, even if they do not have relations. And the uh, efficient cause has always been regarded to as being consent with the vows. So the third objection is going to be from Matthew one twenty-five, And it says, And Joseph knew Mary not until she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So the argument's going to run like this. The passages say that Joseph did not have sexual intercourse with Mary until the birth of Christ. So until implies that the acts ceases once the until is reached. Therefore, the act of not knowing her ceases at the birth of Christ. Therefore, Mary and Joseph knew each other, ergo, sexual intercourse after the birth of Christ. Therefore, there's no, um, there's no perpetual virginity because they had sexual intercourse after the birth of Christ. Like if I said, uh, I didn't begin studying until I had finished my cup of coffee. Obviously, the state of not studying ceased when the until, uh, when the until was met, when that qualification or condition is met. So, this is also another bad argument. And Jerome absolutely roasts over, just rakes him over the coals. Those that go against a perpetual virginity based on on this argument. So he writes that uh, that until can be used in two senses. So in the first sense, it does actually mean this, that there is that definite time in which the act incurs after the until, such as Galatians 3.19, where, where it says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So the law was not added for transgressions after the seed came, but it was for uh, before. And then when the until happened, then it ceased. So it, we do use in our language until in that way, and Scripture does use it in that sense. But it can be used in a second sense, in which the act incurs both before and after the until without any definite reference to the act ceasing. So Jerome, if you read his uh, works against, uh, I think his name's Helvetius, Helvetius, uh, he just has just dozens of texts. He just quotes them boom, 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 over and over and over and over and over again. Jerome just has this litany of texts where until is used in this sense of not having the act happen afterwards. So for example, so Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So Christ doesn't stop sitting on the right hand of God when the until happens. So in, in the future, or depending on your theological view in the past, when, or in the present, when Christ's enemies are put under his feet, does he stop sitting at the right hand of God? Will that sitting at the right hand of God just cease? No. The answer is no. 
because until can be used in multiple senses. So there's plenty of examples of this, Genesis 28.15, Psalm 122.2, 110.1, Matthew 28.20. So until just isn't necessarily used in that sense always in Scripture, both in Old and New Testaments. We don't always use until in that sense. Sorry about that. So, uh, yeah, so until does not always refer to a definite act. So the fourth argument is from the title of firstborn given to Christ. The argument runs thus, the gospels title Christ the firstborn. So firstborn implies at least a secondborn, and there's more children than that. But the problem with this argument, and the reason this is such a bad argument, is that firstborn isn't necessarily used like that by us in our current context or in the scriptural context. When we refer to uh, my firstborn son was just born, that's, uh, that's a certain phrase that people use. Even when they haven't had a secondborn son, they're firstborn, even before they're secondborn. So it's not necessarily referring to a second or third or fourth born, but in multiple times can be used in that sense of just having one kid. It's just they came first, even though there's no second. And in scripture, this is also uh, referred to with the first fruits. So in the law of the first fruits, uh, the firstborn child had to be dedicated to the Lord. He's referred to as the first fruit of the womb. And now this would be impossible. It would be absolutely impossible to have the first fruit of the womb dedicated to the Lord because it's dedicated eight days after the birth. Why? Because when you have your firstborn, it takes at least nine months to make a secondborn. And you're dedicating your firstborn before your secondborn. How are you going to know on the eighth day whether you're going to even have a second child? And it's used in that sense in multiple other instances in Scripture. So this is just a terrible argument. And now the fifth argument is from the fact, this is, I, I believe at least, this is the strongest argument because you get certain fathers like Tertullian. Tertullian's not a church father. He's a schismatic, but for our purposes, he's a church father. You get Tertullian talking about Jesus' brothers, and he seems to at least assume that he's his biological brothers. And you, I mean, the text could be read in a different way, but uh, that's just how the text has, I, in my, my belief, is most clearly read. So the argument is going to be that Jesus is said to have brothers. Brothers are from the same parents. Mary was Jesus' only earthly parent. Therefore, Jesus had other children. Therefore, she is not a perpetual virgin. Now, this can be, this can be argued against in multiple different ways. So uh, the first premise is that Jesus is said to have brothers, and brothers are from the same parents. So this is not necessarily the case. You see the word brother being used in multiple, multiple different senses. It can be referred to as a, uh, as a half-brother. It can be referred to as a cousin. It can be referred to as a countryman. It can be referred to uh, as a fellow member of the church. They're like The way that brother is used is not necessarily referring to the same parents. It can be referred to in multiple different senses. And the idea that Mary was Jesus' only earthly parent. So let's just assume that uh, that brothers being used in the sense of uh, common lineage, 
direct lineage, uh, immediate family, that idea. Mary was not Jesus' only earthly parent. You see in Scripture often that in the Gospels, Joseph is being spoken of as if he is Jesus' adopted father, that Joseph is actually Jesus' father. Even though it's not in a biological sense, he's regarded to be his father. So it's just natural for Joseph's children to be referred to as Jesus' brothers. And this is pretty, pretty common. So the uh, fifth argument is going to be against the idea that Mount Mary took the vow of virginity. And this is going to be from the Reformed. The Reformed, they'll agree with the perpetual virginity, but they'll differ on three points. The first point is going to be with in part two. They'll say that the physical markers of virginity were removed at the birth of Christ. They're going to go against the idea that it's necessary. So they're going to say, well, we shouldn't make it binding since Scripture doesn't explicitly talk about it. And that's true. Scripture only implicitly talks about it, not explicitly. But they draw the consequence that you can't bind the conscience of any man by what's only implicitly brought up in Scripture. It must be explicitly brought up in Scripture in order to bind the conscience of anyone. And the third is going to be against the vow of virginity. They don't believe there is any vow of virginity that Mary took. And as we saw from Augustine, that's not a really good argument. The best explanation of the text the best explanation of the data that we have in Scripture and in tradition is going to be that Mary took the vow of virginity. So Turton is going to argue that these words, referring to the Annunciation, are falsely wrested to a vow of which there is not the slightest trace. They are only those of one wandering on account of the novelty and greatness of the thing and inquiring after the mode. For it could not be but wonderful to a virgin that immediate conception and birth should be foretold, no mention being made of the consummation of marriage or of her spouse Joseph, just as if they were already married, while she herself was conscious of her virginity and knew as yet no husband. So this is really a terrible reading of the text, and it can be attacked on two points. So first, he has his theory that Mary was just inquiring after the mode, for it could not be but wonderful to a virgin that immediate conception and birth should be foretold. And this really makes no sense because there is no indication, excuse me, in what the angel told Mary that she would have any idea about the immediate conception and birth or inquiring after the mode. Like if somebody told you, like if your wife came up to you and said, I'm pregnant, would you start inquiring after the mode about how the heck did this happen? It's such a wonderful thing that I am going to have a child. How does that happen? It just doesn't make any sense that Mary would be shocked. Mary knew how babies were made, and Mary knew that she was getting married. So why in the world would she start asking about the mode and how amazing this thing is and how shocking it is? It doesn't make any sense. So it's just rational to assume that she just assumed that this was going to be a normal conception and birth because the angel did not make any mention about a odd mode of conception or a miraculous conception a miraculous conception or anything like that. It just doesn't make any sense from Turretin's reading of the text. It doesn't make any sense why she would ask how can this be unless she planned on not having relations with St. Joseph, i.e. vow virginity. And it's pretty insane on the second point where we can attack Turretin that he says that no mention being made of the consummation of marriage or of her spouse, Joseph. 
and he is really just flipping this passage on its head, why would why wouldn't it be absolutely implicit when the angel Gabriel talks to Mary that it's in reference to the conception of her marriage and to her spouse Joseph? Why would when the angel comes to her and says, Hey Mary, you're gonna bring forth a child, why would she say well, how is it without conception of marriage, uh, the consummation of marriage in my spouse, Joseph? Why would she ask that question? Why wouldn't she just assume naturally that it's referring to the consummation of marriage and of her spouse, Joseph? Why would she be even wondering about that? That doesn't make any sense. She would just naturally assume that she wouldn't be asking about this. She wouldn't be amazed about this. It really just makes absolutely no sense that Turretin is bringing forth this argument. If we thought of any other, uh, if, if you just thought this through in your head of just putting yourself in that situation of the Annunciation and a friend comes up to you and tells you that basically the events of the Annunciation happened to her, you wouldn't just jump up and down and be like, wow, I can't believe that, uh, that you're going to have a virgin birth. It just doesn't make any sense. The virgin birth is is after all of her shock happens that she realizes that it's not going to happen with Joseph. It's not going to happen through the ordinary and natural means, but it's going to happen through miraculous means. And that's that's about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments. I actually have a, an article where I got a lot of this material from that I wrote a while back. It's called Semper Virgo, and it's in reference to it's a defense of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, I don't going back to that art to that article. There's a few things in there that I don't agree with anymore, and I'm currently writing a paper about uh, the Jewish backgrounds of marriage and of betrothal and those ideas. And I'll I'll take back a few things that I said. I'll write an edit on there, but I'll leave the uh, I'll leave what I written wrote up, but I'll make a little note on there, and I'll be releasing that article within the next few months. It's a paper that I'm writing for a class. And I'll link that in the description below. Uh, make sure you subscribe, visit the website, visit the blog. I'll I'll put that in the description below. And and that's that's about it. Make sure you stay safe out there and have a wonderful rest of your day. And God bless.